welcome to the Awaken Your Kundalini Summit, where leading Kundalini teachers and practitioners are sharing wisdom and practices to shift your frequency and create a more connected relationship with yourself. Share this event with your friends and family, and join us on Facebook at The Shift Network. And now your host, Kia Miller. Welcome, everyone. I'm so excited to introduce our next guest. Sadvi Bhagavati Saraswatiji, PhD. She's an American-born spiritual teacher who's spent the last 25 years in India dedicated to serving the mission of Pooja Swami Chidanand Saraswatiji, who is the director of Paramath Nikitan Ashram in Rishikesh. She has been instrumental in furthering initiatives focused on environmental sustainability, women's rights, and spiritual upliftment for all those who come to receive her counsel. Welcome, Sadviji. It's just such a pleasure to have you here today. So wonderful to be with you. Yeah, really so, so beautiful. So I've had the great pleasure of sitting uh, in many of your satsangs in India, and I've heard some of your extraordinary stories. So I wanted to start off here today with asking you what your perception of Kundalini is and your experience of this in your life that's led you to be in the position that you are today. So maybe we could start there. Wow, okay. So, first of all, it's important to mention in the beginning that I walked into this life not actually, not only not looking for anything consciously, but also not knowing anything about spiritual practice. And so, I didn't come into this thinking, oh, how am I going to raise my kundalini? Or how am I going to get enlightenment? Or how am I going to find a guru? None of that. I came to India with a backpack traveling. And I bring this up in the beginning because that which happened to me is that which I've learned words and terms and semantic explanations for only much later. There was no point at which I said, oh, I know what this is. This is the Kundalini energy that's awakening. Never. It was only in retrospect, many, many years later, when I even learned that, that I understood, okay, so that's the name that's given to that piece of that experience that I had. That's the name of what we call these energies. And, but by that point, I had already been through, been graced with so many extraordinary experiences that by the time the words became part of my vocabulary, 
that's really what they just were, were sort of labels to be able to go back and say, oh, okay, so we can call this that and we can call this this. And then I would get books and I would learn, oh, okay, so this is that and this is this. But I didn't have any of that when I actually started having the experiences. And so that for me feels important to mention because I'll share some stories with you. But the words are not words that I had in my vocabulary at that time. It wasn't that while it was happening, I was thinking, oh, yes, thank God, the Kundalini. So for me, it, it was really, and it has continued to be, an experience of grace. I came to India, as I said, with a backpack, traveling, not knowing anything about the culture and the country. It wasn't even my idea to come. And I stood on the banks of Ganga and had such a powerful, unprecedentedly powerful experience. It, it felt like a veil was pulled off, not just my eyes, but a veil was pulled off my entire being. And I could see, but not just see with my eyes, but see with my entire being, see with every aspect of me that interacted with the universe at all. And I could see, I could see who I was, I could see the truth, I could see the divine, I could see the whole relationship of me to the divine, of me to the universe. And it was a, a transformational experience, to say the least. And that was really what made me know that I needed to, to stay, that made me know this is what my life is about. And in those early days, it, it was almost a continuous experience of what, in retrospect, we can talk about as Kundalini. I, I moved through the world literally filled with such energy that was coming out of every aspect of me. I remember lying in bed in the nights, and if you've ever been to India, and especially, I, mean, I know you and Tommy have, but the listeners, and especially to an ashram, yeah, you'll understand the description of the beds, which are basically thin sheets of wood uh, held up with four wooden posts and a sheet of wood, maybe about, maybe yay thick or so, with a thin mattress on top. And I remember lying in my bed for the first many, many nights thinking how I was going to explain to Pooja Swamiji that I had burned a hole straight through his bed. The energy was so powerful that I literally thought I was burning holes through the bed. And if I turned over and I lay on my back, I felt like I was going to just burst through the room and literally knock it into just bricks and cement. And about 
that went on pretty continuously for a few weeks. And a few weeks after I arrived, there was a, a person who had been called in to do Reiki initiations. There was a group from America who had come and who had wanted to learn Reiki. So Swamiji had called in a Reiki master and the Reiki master was giving them all level one Reiki initiation. And I had just taken to sort of hanging out with this group because they spoke English and they were the first people from America I'd met since I got here. And so they said, oh, do you want to join us for the Reiki initiation? Now, I didn't know what Reiki was. Again, these were not words in my vocabulary. I was a psychology student, a neurology student, not a mystic not a religious person, not even one of those people who say, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. So, but I said, sure, because everything was such an extraordinary adventure. Everything that had been happening was just more and more beautiful than whatever had happened before it. And so when they said, oh, do you want this Reiki initiation? I said, sure, why not? And so I walked into the room and I, I had missed the original introduction he gave because I was doing some seva. And they had me sit down. They said, you can go in the first batch. So I sit in the chair and the Reiki master says, okay, I'm going to do this initiation. I say, okay. He says, close your eyes. I close my eyes. and. I don't feel anything. As you know, Reiki's not about touch. He didn't, he didn't touch me at all. And it was quite short. And a few minutes later, he says to me, you know, I only was planning to do level one initiations, but your chakras are so open that I feel like I can give you a level two initiation as well if you would like it. Now, it was the first time I had heard the word chakra. I had no idea, again, what any of it meant. But I was thinking, well, sure. I mean, level one only took a couple minutes. I'm sitting in this chair. You didn't even touch me. Why not? So I say, sure. And a few minutes pass. And I have a vivid recollection of when he says, okay, we're done. It was as though the words were sort of traveling from somewhere out in the ether. And I, I vividly recall the experience of them as though they were on some kind of a flying carpet or flying saucer, sort of coming through the ether, through the universe, into my ear, into my brain, and making some kind of cognitive sense. And I said, Oh, okay. So I stand up and I walk from that room into where Pujaswamiji is sitting in his garden giving darshan to people. And he's got a group of maybe 15 or 20 people sitting in front of him. And it's evening time, it's getting dark. And I, I bow down, I sit in the very back of the group, we're sitting on the grass. I bow down and I sit down. And suddenly, it felt like I was sitting on a, a geyser 
from, you know, Yellowstone National Park or the geyser in the middle of Lake Geneva, you know, just this shooting water that comes up out of the ground. And it felt like it came up and into me and washed through me. And it was the most extraordinary experience as though literally I had sat down onto a sprinkler head, except I knew that his garden didn't have sprinkler heads. And I just kept sitting and the experience happened and then it dissipated. And when the group stood up to leave, I also bowed and I also stood up and Pooja Swamiji looked at me. And he said, just he motioned. I don't think he actually even said anything. He just motioned, like, follow him. So the group walked out, and I followed him in. And he opens the door to a storeroom that I had not yet seen. And he points to this beautiful carpet on the floor of the storeroom, this, like, beautiful woven rug. And he says, lie down. Now, the room was this very small room with bookshelves on the sides filled with books, filled with gifts that Pooja Swamiji had been given that he was waiting to recycle and give to other people. And just this beautiful rug on the floor. And he says, lie down. And I did, of course. And he turns off the light. And I then hear the key lock in the door behind him. So he's locked me in. He's walked out. And in that moment, my entire being was like, what I needed was to be in that safe space to have that experience. And my entire being just cracked open. And I vividly remember as I breathed, and it was as though the waves of my breath were just expanding and expanding and long since having expanded throughout my body. And now they were expanding up through the bookshelves and the ceiling and through the ceiling and breaking the ceiling and into the universe. And, and it was exquisite. And I have no idea how much time passed. But at some point, the light went on, and I think he said something like, how are you? And I have no recollection of what I said, but whatever it was, it convinced her, him that this girl needed to stay locked up in the storeroom. And so he turns back off the light. He walks out again. He locks the door. And I just continued this extraordinary experience of expansion into the universe, expansion as the universe, expansion as the universe expanding into the universe, becoming the universe, being the universe as the universe. And eventually, I came back. And I, I, I remember that part vividly, the experience of coming back into the and again, feeling the carpet beneath. And a short time later, I heard the door unlock and the light turned on. But it wasn't Pooja Swamiji, it was our cook who bent down and said, 
Pujaswamiji say you eat food. And he knelt down and took me by the hand and brought me into the kitchen where he fed me this beautiful bowl of pot kitchery, which is lentils and rice. But it's, it's the equivalent, it's sort of the Indian equivalent of chicken soup. Like whatever ails you, kitchery is what you're given. And so that was yet another experience. And I'm thinking in my mind of all of the different experiences that have happened that one could relate in some way to the concept of kundalini energy. And, and there's just so many more. I'll just share one more, though. Because um, I know you must have a whole bunch of other questions as I well. Have a bunch to of ask. Yes, uh, I do. <laughs> I knew, I knew. So I'll share. I'll share just one other one other experience of that, which was the day that I finally was given my month. Because in many ways, it was the opposite of. The experience of going from inner to outer, it was much more the experience of the outer coming into the inner. And when, when he gave me my mantra, it felt as though, I mean, he, he chanted the words and then I chanted them after him. But the experience was an experience not of, not of verbal chanting, but rather of him taking the words and actually implanting them in my brain. Like I literally felt the words get put into my brain. And from that moment on, the mantra just started chanting itself. And I chant it and I do my practice of japa, but there's, there's this experience, even when I'm not consciously sitting with my mala, consciously doing japa, of the mantra being there and chanting itself. And that experience of the, the energy of the universe being put into me has been extraordinary. So these are just a couple of the many, many, many experiences of being touched by, by that energy. I, and the grace in all of that, the grace in your experience and the grace in you uh, finding uh, such a powerful teacher and I don't mean powerful and you know overbearing kind of powerful what I experienced Pooja Swamiji having is just such a deep quiet presence and power and that you had the grace to have that personal uh, experience and direction from a spiritual teacher which I think is what is not here in this day and age for all those who are seeking to cultivate more presence, more personal power to start to break free of the, the conditioning 
that is that is holding our energy captive, you could say. So we're not able to have this this expansion of consciousness that like that you're talking about. So for for those people who haven't had the grace of a teacher, can you talk to them a little bit um, about uh, ways and best practices to to cultivate this inner luminosity, this inner presence we're calling Kundalini? First of all, the the grace of having a teacher, as you've mentioned, of having a guru is extraordinary. And I want to just speak to that for a moment, and then I'll come back to and what to do if you don't. Because the ego, and by ego, I don't mean just arrogance, but I mean that entire mental construct that says, this is who I am. This is who I'm supposed to be. This is what I can do. This is what I can't do. That entire construct of ego holds us back. And it holds us back in the, the most tragic way. And what the guru does when we talk about a guru, a guru is Literally, the word is one who removes darkness and brings light. So it's the remover of the darkness of ignorance, that darkness of the ego self that says, this is who you are. You are your history. You are your story. You are your drama. You are your personality. You are your capabilities. You are the color of your skin. You are your bank account. You are your education level. You are your sexual orientation and your socioeconomic status and all of these. And that keeps us in a box. And the, the energy, grace, it needs space in which to flow. It exists anyway. It's not that you creating space somehow magically makes grace appear. But what it does is it permits that grace to flow through you. It permits that grace to transform you. And so for me, the guru has been extraordinary in constantly creating space in me, constantly, you know, metaphorically, like the the artist with the piece of clay on the potter's wheel, metaphorically sort of slapping that lump of clay into the shape of a vessel that is empty through which grace can flow. Now, if you don't have it, first of all, don't despair. But what it means is that you're going to have to be even more clear about the games of the ego. Because if there isn't someone saying to you, that's ego. If there isn't someone saying to you, don't believe that voice. If there isn't someone metaphorically slapping you back into shape when you speak from the place of ego, you're going to have to do that within yourself. 
And that becomes, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary, it's a huge challenge, but it's, it's also a beautiful challenge to take up. And by the way, even with a guru, you still have the challenge. It's just, you get some, some extraordinary help from grace. And here's what I would suggest in terms of, as you say, best practices. First of all, any experience of the truth of who you are that has to do with divinity, wholeness, fullness, completeness, perfection, that doesn't simultaneously make you aware of the divinity, wholeness, fullness, perfection of everyone around you is not a complete experience. We tragically have these moments of, ah, I'm divine, I'm God, I feel it, I'm whole, I'm perfect. And therefore, you better do the dishes. You better be the one to take out the trash. You better be nice to me because I'm God. Like, how dare you treat me like that? Don't you know? I'm God. And, and this, this incredibly insidious game of the ego that gives us an experience but gives it to us in such a tiny little box that we're not actually able to have the fullness of the experience. And so be very wary of any experience that seems to be just about. The minute you have an awareness of your divinity, of your wholeness, fullness, completeness, perfection, the experience of you as consciousness. When your eyes open, or when you walk out into the world, you should see the world You should see everyone in the world as an embodiment of that as perfect, regardless of whether they know it or not. They may not be aware of it, but you should be aware. And so that's one very important aspect is if it feels like it's just about you, chances are it's a game of and not an actual. Second thing is, if it makes you feel more arrogant and less humble, it's a game of the The true spiritual experiences are ones that leave us in tears of ecstasy, in a state of such everythingness, that it's a simultaneous nothingness. And such humility to the everythingness of existence. And such oneness with that. Every enlightened master I have had the incredible blessing meeting and being in their presence are the humblest people I've ever 
They are the ones who will always tell you whatever you say. Oh, it's just God's grace. It used to drive me crazy when I first met him to talk to you. Because I would say to him, you are amazing. You are so wonderful. You are incredible. And all he would say is, it's just, it's just God's grace. And that, that wasn't just his response. That is his experience. And that has been true about all of the really enlightened, awakened masters I have met, is the more awake they are, the more humble they are. The more transparent they are, they become like windows to the divine. Also, what I would say is, The voice of the ego is, what about me? What's in it for me? And the voice of real grace and awakening is what through me. Because with that awakening comes an experience of fullness, an experience of abundance, an experience of not just enoughness, but cup runneth over us. And so the most natural outcome of that is to want to serve, to want to share, not because you're going to get good karma, not because it's the right thing to do, but just because it's the nature of feeling abundant. It's the nature of feeling like one's cup running. Whereas the nature of ego is to want to say, what about me? What's in it for me? Where am I in this? And so if you find yourself asking those questions, having that struggle, chances are it's a game of Whereas if you find yourself feeling so, so abundant already, Abundance isn't about what I've got or what I'm going to get. It's about this and the perfection of this moment, the abundance of this. And if that becomes your reality, then you've been blessed with light. And what that means, the practice is, is to keep coming back to keep coming back, to keep coming back to that, to get out of the voice that says me, me, mine, mine, I, and to get back into the experience of what through, what through. How can I be a vessel? How can I just be a clear vessel for the divine to flow? Because that's how grace flows. How can I get out of the way? So. It absolutely can be done. It just requires a constant wakefulness and a constant return to the truth of the moment. A constant return back to the heart, out of the mind that's in separation and judging and yearning and wanting and pushing away and comparing and separating. And back into the heart. I'm so grateful that you talked about the ego and the identifications and the ways to keep coming back into that place of grace. 
because in my experience, this is a, uh, a journey of, of uh, as you said, awareness moment by moment by moment. And it's, it's a discipline to, to continue that awareness because of the, the force of the momentum of our unconscious mind that keeps us in pattern. So what would you say to people about ways to break that momentum of unconsciousness that that keeps us repeating the same things over and over again, even though our hearts may be yearning to be conscious, to be present, to be in the we, not the me. So can you speak a little bit to that? Sure. It's the good news is it's all in our hands. Nobody can take my consciousness away. But what has happened is we've become habituated to distraction. And this isn't, this isn't new. You know, our, our scriptures were talking about the monkey mind long before there were smartphones, long before there were TVs, long before there was any technology. So it's not, it's not Facebook's fault. It's not my mobile's fault. It's not my boss's fault. It's the nature of the mind. And so the first piece is to be aware of that. But then also to realize that the mind has to be trained like any part of my body. It's like if you said, God, you know, I really want to play the piano like Mozart, and I just can't, and I'm so frustrated, and it's so annoying. And then you say, well, do you practice playing the piano? So, well, you know, about six months ago, I did a course for a couple of days, and but I haven't really practiced since then. And you think, well, on what level do you think that you should be able to play like until you actually sit down and practice. And of course, for that, you'd actually have to have some innate ability as well. But even with that innate ability, you've got to sit down and put in the time. Everything in life that we, that we want to do, we understand intuitively, I have. I have to do it over and over and over again, whether it's playing basketball, whether it's playing the piano, whether it's cooking, whatever I'm learning to do, any skill, any ability. Kids learn to walk, they wobble, they wobble, they wobble, they fall down, they get up, they wobble, they wobble, they wobble, they fall down. If the first time the kid fell down, so well, I guess, Guess I just don't have legs that know how to walk. What a tragedy. So on an odd level, we all intuitively know that about the other aspects of our body, but our mind somehow, we either just expect it to be exactly what we want, or we give in completely and just say, well, forget it. I guess my mind is just like, no. We have to take some conscious control here. Yeah. The mind is a vehicle and it takes us places. And it's a fantastic vehicle because it can take us a lot of places we want to go. 
But we have to be clear of where we want to go and where the mind is headed at that moment. And so the example that I always give about this is, you know, if you walk into an airport or a train station or a bus station and you say to the person behind the counter, all right, I want a first class ticket. What's the first thing they're going to ask? Where to, ma'am? Where do you want to go? And until and unless I know where I want to go, no one can sell me a ticket. And on the flip side, if you have a friend who says to you, guess what? I just got us two first class tickets. Best new plane. What's the first question you're going to ask? Well, where are we going? And if he says or she says, we're going to hell. We're going to depression. We're going to misery. But I've got us two first class tickets. You're going to say, forget it. And then they say, well, no, seriously, seats are so cushy. It's great entertainment system, open bar. You'd still say, forget it. I don't care how cushy the journey is. I don't want to go to that destination. But with our minds, we have these thoughts that come in. And the thought is judging, and the thought is grudges, and the thought is anger, and the thought is competition, and the thought is this unfulfilled expectation and we jump on it because mm. it's this cushy ride but it's headed to hell it's headed to misery because when we finally get there we're jealous we're depressed we're angry we're frustrated but we continue to voluntarily jump on these thought vehicles Whereas really, when, when a thought of jealousy, of competition, of anger, of grudge, of separation comes, I should be the guy on the sidewalk who goes, see you later, have a nice trip, not getting in. But that takes practice. Mm. Doesn't happen automatically. Because we've been habituated to just jumping on any thought that comes through. And it doesn't even matter if it comes from our own mind. So many of the thoughts we have actually are sort of implanted by our culture. You watch a TV show, you watch a movie, you read a book, you see something online, suddenly your thoughts go in that direction. This is why we have to be really careful about what we take in. What type of media are we taking in? Because they are creating our thoughts. And so to gain, to gain that control of it, to gain that freedom from separation, that freedom from the ego, to gain that ability to keep coming back and to be conscious, takes practice. Just like meditating takes practice. The first time you sit down to meditate, your mind is all over it. And then you just keep bringing it back. Bring it back to the breath. Then the mind is in Paris. You bring it back. Then the mind is in the bakery down the street. You bring it back. Then the mind is in your childhood. You bring it back. The mind is in the tough conversation you have to have with your boss at work. You bring it back. And it's just a practice. You just keep bringing it back. No berating, just 
And slowly, 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 the mind learns to sleep in our meditation. But then that serves us in the rest of our life. Because while it's certainly more difficult to meditate with your eyes open as you're moving through the world than it is with your eyes closed sitting in your home temple, that which you do sitting in your home temple is creating the impression, creating the new habit in you for when you move through the world. And so you find yourself in the world, you're lost, you're stressed, you're yelling at someone. You just bring it back. The minute you realize you've lost it, just bring it back. And the breath is an extraordinary ally here. Because if you can bring the awareness to the breath, particularly as low down in your abdomen as you can, it grounds you, it centers you, brings you back to the present. And you practice, whether it's eating mindfully, walking mindfully. Okay, you may be in a rush doesn't mean you can't be mindful. And this is where our devices become our enemy. Because the few moments that we actually do have during the day to really practice mindfulness, walking, eating, most of us get on our devices. And so we actually lose the opportunity to re-remind ourselves about being mindful by consciously choosing to scroll Facebook or Instagram or emails or whatever we're doing as we walk down the street or while we're eating our meals. That's the time. Be device-free. Not because the device is bad, but because it's a wonderful opportunity to re-anchor yourself in the present. So if every time you have a meal, if every time you drink a glass of water, if every time you get up to walk somewhere, even if you're just walking to the back, be mindful. Let go of the, the habit that says, where I go, my phone goes. And while I'm going, I have to be checking. If you need to take it with you, no problem. But restrain yourself from the urge to be constantly checking it. Use the walking as an opportunity to just come back to the moment. Can you be aware of the way that you're foot feels as it lands on the ground? Can you be aware of the way that the shift in weight feels? Can you chant Sat Nam with each breath? Or So Hum? Or Om Ma? Or whatever works for you. Mm -hmm. But can you chant as you walk with each step? Bring yourself back and you'll get it. But it takes practice. And so we have to commit ourselves to that practice. And then slowly, 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 it changes. Hmm. <laughs> 100%. I love that. Yes. Yes. Well, on this journey of awakening, there really is only just this present moment. And as you've been so beautifully speaking to all the different ways to remain in this present moment, 
And so uh, I would love if you could lead us through uh, some little meditative practice that can be supportive on people's journey um, in this awakening to themselves and the possibilities right here in this present moment. Sure. So the the simplest practice is a a beautiful opportunity and you can do it while you sit to meditate and you can do it in a three-minute break at work. You can do it even with your eyes closed, I mean with your eyes open. And the practice is a practice in which we bring our awareness to our breath. And if it's safe wherever you are right now, allow your eyes to close. But if not, keep them open. But bring the awareness to your breath. And don't judge it, don't try to change it. But simply take a moment and being fully present with the breath, with no judgment, no analysis. We're not trying to make it longer or shorter or deeper or slower. Simply being present. Allow the awareness to merge fully into. And now, on your exhalation, allow yourself to let go. On a physical level, we're expelling carbon dioxide. We're expelling that which is old, which is stale, which if left inside of us, will prevent us from living healthy, full lives. We expel that carbon dioxide that has to be expelled. But along with that, allow yourself to breathe out all of the rest within you that also is old that also is stale, that also is keeping you from breathing in the newness of the moment. So breathe out the masks that you wear. Breathe out the roles that you play. 
Breathe out your history. Breathe out your drama and identity. As you exhale, just breathe all of this out. And allow yourself to clear that space for the new. Breathe out the grudges. Breathe out the pain. Breathe out personality. Breathe it all out. See how much space you can create in yourself. And at the end of each exhalation, after you've expelled something else, Old. Allow yourself to drop deep into the core of the sound. Take that moment before you inhale, that breathless, empty moment. and use it to drop deep. Keep letting go. More and more as you exhale. And drop into that spaciousness created by letting go. All that junk that's clogging our lives. It's creating a suffocation. Just let it out. And as you breathe in now, now that space has been created, 
Now, as you breathe in, as on a physical level, you're taking in this gorgeous oxygen, this life-giving pran into your lungs. Allow yourself to also take in that which is real, that which is true, that which is this moment of perfection. Breathe it in. Breathe in the perfection of this moment. Breathe in the perfection of you. And allow that as you breathe in, allow that to touch all the cells in your being. Fill them all. Breathe in the love of the universe. Fill yourself with it. Breathe in the grace. Let it flow into and through you. Know this to be true. Bring the palms of your hands together in Namaste. And gently, assuming your hands are not on the steering wheel of a car, rub the palms of your hands against each other. And if your eyes have been closed, take those palms and press them into your closed eyes. And gently open your eyes. And if your eyes hadn't been closed, just take those hands and full of energy and just rub them on your body. You can do that anyway, even if they were closed. And we did it a little bit longer this evening, but however much time you have, two minutes, three minutes, just give yourself a moment.
Even as I said, while you're driving your car, don't close your eyes. But you can still just let go as you breathe, because we breathe everywhere. Whatever else we're doing, we're breathing. So use that opportunity as you breathe to expel not only the stale air, but to expel that which is inside of us, Mm. blocking us, holding us back, keeping us stuck. Let it go. Thank you so much, Sadviji. That was so beautiful. I wanted to let people know here about the International Yoga Festival that you are directing and um, producing at Parmath Nikitan in Rishikesh the first week of March. So for all of those of you listening, watching us here now, this is your official invite to come home Whenever we are welcomed at Paramath Nikitan, the people who greet us welcome us home. And that's what it feels like when you, when you go there. So come and join us for a community yogic experience with many of the yogic masters of the world in Rishikesh, the first week of March. And feel the roots and the origins of yoga so beautifully uh, presented at this festival that Sadhviji um, and Swamiji put on. And Sadhvi, how can people learn more about you and your work and your online satsangs and anything else that you're involved with at Parmas? Well, they can, they can go to my website, which is really easy. It's just sadviji.org. Uh, they can learn more about Parmarth Nikathan, about the ashram at parmarth.org. And both of those sites will direct you also to the sites of the various humanitarian and charitable programs and organizations that we that we run for the environment, for water, for women and children, for so many different things. So both of those sites will direct you to the other sites as well. And yeah, we hope to see everyone here for International Yoga Festival. That also is easy. It's just internationalyogafestival.org. And if for any reason that week really doesn't work for you and you just cannot make it, well, the other 51 weeks a year are also really beautiful here. And you are more than welcome. Just send an email and come home, as Kia said. Come home to the banks of Mother Ganga. Come home to the lap. The Himalayas, it's a, a very, very sacred place where that energy that we are searching for all over the rest of the world seems to just exist here in the air, in the soil, in the water, in the wind. Hmm. So come home. 
Sariji, another thing that Tommy and I really enjoy is listening to the live RT ceremonies happening on the Ganga uh, every night, your time, and the morning, our time. So how can people watch or listen to those? So that's, that's a great point, actually, is we do our beautiful, sacred Ganga Arti what Puja Swamiji calls our evening happy hour. So we do that every evening and it's almost always live. And then right after that, we gather in here for satsang. And so I had given my website for people to be able to go and to watch other ones, but they can actually also watch it live every day on Facebook and also on YouTube. And so our YouTube is Paramarth Nikathon. And on Facebook, they can watch it either on Paramarth Nikathon or they can watch it on mine, which is just Sadhvi Bhagwati Saraswati. And that, that happens here at around 6 p.m. in the evening is our Arthi. And then the satsang begins usually around 7 in the evening here. So yes, that's that's your your early morning beginning at about five thirty in the morning in California. Yeah, it's truly sublime. Often just coming out of my practice just to listen and be in that that celebratory devotional space. And that's obviously a whole other conversation that we could have, which we'll have again in the future, I hope. So thank you so much for joining us here today. And thank you all who have been viewing this and taking in the sublime wisdom of Sadviji, who has dedicated her life to this path of, of the spiritual life and service and sharing and educating uh, whomever comes across her path. So thank you all for being here with us today and wishing you a beautiful rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the Awaken Your Kundalini Summit, brought to you by the Shift Network. To learn more, visit awakenyourkundalinisummit.com. To join our global community of people awakening to their divine humanity and taking inspired action, visit theshiftnetwork.com. Thank you again for gathering with us and for sharing this life-enhancing path with your friends and family.